Welcome back to Challenge Radio, the official podcast of Progressive Labor Party. PLP fights to destroy capitalism and the dictatorship of the capitalist class. We organize workers, soldiers, and youth into a revolutionary movement for communism. Join us. Today on the podcast, we'll have a reading and discussion on a recent editorial and challenge entitled Palestinian Holocaust in the Name of Imperialism which seeks to understand the ongoing genocide in Gaza in light of the inter-imperialist rivalry between China, Russia, and the United States. Editorial, Palestinian Holocaust in the Name of Imperialism, Thursday, November 16th, 2023. In the night when the Nazi-Israeli military viciously bombed Gaza's largest hospital-turned-shelter, they forced 60,000 displaced workers and children to flee. This is just one atrocity and what can only be described as a genocide of the working class in occupied Gaza. Since declaring war on Hamas, the Palestinian nationalist bosses who massacred more than a thousand Jewish and Arab workers, the Israeli capitalist rulers have killed a child every 10 minutes in Gaza. In an area smaller than the city of Detroit, Israel has rained 25,000 tons of bombs, 1.5 times the force of the atomic bomb the U.S. dropped on Hiroshima in World War II. Israel has redoubled its murderous efforts by cutting off water, food, fuel, and electricity to 2.3 million people. Genocide is the natural outgrowth of a system of vicious competition for profits. The global crisis of capitalism is driving the carnage of workers in Sudan, Ethiopia, Congo, and Armenia, as well as in the Gaza Strip. The bosses solve their contradictions with small wars that inevitably lead to world war. Progressive Labor Party calls for no war but class war. Let's build an international movement from east to west, north to south, for communist revolution, our only solution. U.S. Entanglements Amend Decay The instability in the world today reflects a dramatic shift in imperialist competition, with the U.S. in sharp decline and Chinese finance capital rapidly ascending to challenge for worldwide supremacy. The genocide underway now in Gaza was spurred by a move by Saudi Arabia and Israel to normalize their relations, a deal that threatened to further isolate Iran and Hamas. It also reflects the fight to control Middle East oil and the U.S. pivot to Asia, a desperate attempt to contain China. This left traditional U.S. allies like Saudi Arabia feeling abandoned, and the Middle East open for business with U.S. rivals, again, mainly China. The U.S. may soon face a three-front war it can't win. In the Middle East, against the Russian-backed Iran, in Eastern Europe via the Ukraine-Russia war, and in the South China Sea and Taiwan, in a battle over shipping routes, naval dominance, and semiconductors. Tensions are growing between the U.S. and its NATO allies and the BRICS alliance of emerging economies, 
which includes Brazil, India, and South Africa, as well as China and Russia. Since its founding in 1948, Israel has played a big role as a junior partner of U.S. imperialism. First as a counterweight to Russian influence in the region, then to counter Iran. In return, the U.S. has armed the brutal Israeli bosses to the teeth and financed their fascist occupation of Palestinian territories in the West Bank and Gaza. Now, as children in Gaza are dismembered and premature babies in incubators die for a lack of electricity, the U.S. is sending an additional $320 million in weapons to the Israeli killing machine. Meanwhile, once solid alliances seem more fragile by the day, regional rulers make lukewarm calls for a ceasefire. Turkey and Colombia, formerly staunch U.S. allies, have pulled their ambassadors from Israel. Iran, the chief U.S. rival in the region, has exploited this volatility to its advantage. The chief funder of Hamas, Hezbollah, in southern Lebanon, and the Houthis in Yemen. Iran has encouraged their attacks on U.S. installations. Iranian-backed militias recently attacked two U.S. bases in Iraq and Syria. As a deterrent, the U.S. has shifted additional warships, missile systems, and 2,000 Marines to the Middle East. But now they're worried they'll be spread too thin to prepare for the coming war with China and Russia. Despite the beginning of a global transition to renewable energy, oil will remain the lifeblood of capitalism for the foreseeable future. China gets half of its oil from the Middle East. Through its Belt and Road Initiative, it has gained a foothold in port cities that link the Persian Gulf to the Arabian, Red, and Mediterranean seas. China's real agenda is increasing military cooperation and exporting surveillance technologies to countries under the Belt and Road Initiative. Between the Abraham Accords, a 2020 peace deal between Israel and the United Arab Emirates and Bahrain, and the proposed Saudi-Israeli peace agreement, Iran was confronted with the prospect of U.S.-centered alliances controlling the maritime choke points of the Straits of Hormuz, the Suez Canal, and the Straits of Bab al-Mandab. This was an existential threat to the Iranian bosses. To disrupt the deal between Israel and Saudi bosses, Iran is widely speculated to have pushed Hamas to conduct its October 7 slaughter. It's important to note that workers shouldn't be fooled by peace deals and promises of normalization. At best, these agreements only delay the eventual inter-imperialist war to determine which capitalists will reign supreme. Workers have only two choices, to accept war and fascism or to build a revolutionary communist party. Nationalism is deadly. Hamas, like all junior capitalists, is driven by profit and not the needs of workers and children of Gaza. The group's nationalism undermines the essential unity of Arab and Jewish workers. To paraphrase a PLP document 
Nationalism Hurts the Palestinian Struggle from 1974, the task is not to determine who is the rightful owner of the land of Palestine slash Israel. Rather, it is to fight for communism, for the collective ownership of all means of production by the working class. No matter how militant they may seem, nationalist movements are counter-revolutionary. Consider Haiti, the world's first free black republic, enslaved by debt to French bankers, occupied mercilessly by U.S. and U.N. forces, it has become a worker's hell run by local capitalist gangsters. Or consider South Africa, where a courageous struggle wound up replacing white bosses with black rulers who happily worked with the same white bosses as long as they could steal their share of the spoils. Today, South Africa is one of the most unequal countries in the world, with the wealth gap between white and black workers unchanged since apartheid. These national liberation movements, and too many more, show what happens when fights against imperialism fail to fight for international communist liberation. We must reject both Zionism and Palestinian nationalism both anti-Muslim racism and anti-Jewish racism. The workers united will never be defeated. Workers charge bosses with genocide. We can't fall into the trap of backing any bosses, not the ruthless gangsters of Hamas, not the genocidal state terrorists of Israel. We must win workers, youth, and soldiers to the idea that an attack on one is an attack on all. When the capitalist system resorts to violence, to remain silent is to fall in line with the boss's war agenda. What we choose to do matters. We need to look no further than the anti-Vietnam War movement started by Progressive Labor Party in the 1960s. Though it was later co-opted by liberal bosses, the movement inspired millions of workers worldwide to fight back against U.S. imperialist genocide and support the heroic workers in Vietnam, who later were themselves betrayed by their own nationalist rulers. Today, wherever we look, we see sparks of working-class rage against the Israeli bosses' genocide. From Britain and Barcelona, Spain to Tacoma, Washington and Oakland, California, anti-racist dock workers and protesters are blocking shipments of arms and Israel-bound warships. No ruling class of the world can stop the international working class. If you agree, let's make these small victories last by building an international communist party. We need to arm millions upon millions with the most powerful weapon in the world, communist ideas. Only then can the working class smash the capitalists' borders and end their terror for all time? Join us. There are thousands of rebels fighting for their lives. The world is watching closely as the youth and workers rise. The silent night is shattered. The stormy winds do rage. Apartheid rules South Africa. 
the struggle mounts again. South Africa means fight back. This is what we say. South Africa means fight back, my friends. And fight back means today. Now they have to be prepared. Of this you may be sure. To fight the armies of the state. And their blazing guns of war. Workers of all nations must support this fight. Struggle on to victory, to win we must unite. South Africa means... Uh, all right, everyone. Uh, welcome back to Challenge Radio. Uh, we're here to talk about the latest editorial in Challenge, which focuses on inter-imperialist rivalry and how that affects the ongoing genocide occurring in Gaza. I'm joined by two comrades uh, to discuss the editorial, but first, I wanted to give a chance for one of my comrades to talk a little bit about the political work that they've been doing around this issue in New York, the things that they've been noticing, you know, what they think are the opportunities to be effective and standing against, uh, you know, the Israeli state and nationalism in general. Yeah, thanks. Uh, so I think just to sort of preface my remarks, I think what's happening in New York and not just New York, around around the country, actually, on many college campuses and in many cities is showing us a really good example of how our line that liberal bosses, liberal fascists are our are, are biggest danger, are the biggest threat to our class, how that line uh, is correct. So in New York, we have a, a Democratic mayor, we have a Democratic city council, we have Black and Latin women. Those are the people that are leading the government and leading the institutions. So, for example, the City University of New York is led by a Puerto Rican chancellor, who is a liberal. And the board of trustees are made up of liberals. And yet, on October 11th, uh, this was so four days after Hamas's attacks, the chancellor of CUNY, the City University of New York, released a statement that was more than 450 words long. And not a single one of those words was Palestine or Palestinian or Gaza. His, his statement basically erased Palestinian workers from, from the whole story. It was all about the, the harms that were done to Israel and the terrorism of Hamas and so on and so forth. And he furthermore linked students who had by already come out uh, in huge numbers to protest uh, Israeli aggression. And so, and again, this is only four days after Hamas's attack, but it was already very clear Israel was going to launch a, a massive counterattack that was going to threaten thousands and thousands of, of Gazan workers. And of course, we've seen that that's exactly what's happened. So students were, were out on the streets protesting against this response by the Israeli government. And the chancellor's statement basically said that if you were out on the street protesting Israeli aggression and apartheid and fascism, that you were supporting Hamas, right? So he linked those two things together. And really, it was an attempt to threaten and intimidate and silence you know, students and workers who were, who were trying to uh, say something against what was going on. At one of those demonstrations, 
a Zionist councilwoman brought a gun uh, to the demonstration, which is against the law in New York to have a gun in, in the area that she was at. She obviously brought it to the demonstration to threaten and intimidate the protesters. And the chancellor has said nothing about this. You know, he hasn't said anything against a woman who threatened his students, apparently, and, and workers at his university. There have been a number of workers who have been threatened or fired from their jobs in New York City, you know, again, led by liberal politicians. And there has been no statement from our mayor or the city council about, you know, how this it represents anything. You know, it's not an attack on workers. It's not anything, right? It's just silence. And in the DOE, uh, also led by liberals, uh, well, first of all, they released a statement telling teachers that they could not talk about their personal political views with students, even on their own time. Uh, they could not do it in the classroom. They could not do it using DOE uh, equipment, and they could not do it even on their own free time. So what we see basically is the whole city leadership agreeing to stifle, to attack workers who have been trying to speak out against this, this genocide that's going on in Gaza. And it's a city led by liberals. And especially on college campuses, this is not a unique thing. Uh, the same thing is happening throughout the country on many college campuses where students are being suppressed. Yeah, I'm just thinking to think not too long ago, we were told that if we got Biden in, we would get out fascism, you know, or if, if Trump stayed in office and there would be fascism. But this is really strange and ridiculous to see, I'm sure for a lot of people, that these liberals or these democratic powers that a lot of people rested their faith in are now aligned with open racists or, or gutter racists. I even saw it at a town hall meeting that I was at where city representative was donning a, a blue Israel scarf. And I took that as an intimidation tactic, but many of the other people on the board kind of said, hey, don't come here targeting her or criticizing her. It's like, why aren't you, why are you feeling like we're just attacking somebody that's obviously being openly racist or imagine somebody celebrating at your funeral? Wouldn't you be upset? Yeah, we're, we're really starting to see this process develop where the, the liberals, because of their material interests, right, they, they can't rule in the old way, right? So we want to say, like, normally they would, you know, co-opt the movement or they'd make some mealy-mouth thing. They might try to apply a little bit of pressure to Israel. Do what you got to do, but keep the numbers low, keep it low-key. Um, you know, go back to, you know, kicking people out their land and doing a few sprees of bombing and not make this such a big thing on the, the news because it upsets people and people are rightly infuriated to see fellow workers being indiscriminately bombed. Uh, but when you have this inter-imperialist rivalry and this crisis of capitalism, their leverage is reduced. They can't really make Israel stop because they need them too much as an ally in the region. Um, and they can't sell this to the American people because it's so outrageous. So instead... They have to rely on these other tactics, these silencing people, intimidating people, threatening to fire them. You know, I've seen videos of 
students being dragged off of Brandeis University by the police just for protesting. Um, a number of journalists have been fired. And, you know, this is, will continue every time the liberal ruling class is between a rock and a hard place. They're, they're going to take it out in our class. And they're, gonna, they're not going to even pretend to be, you know, open debate and let's hear ideas. And we're going to deal with Kente Clause and stuff. That's all going away. What's, what will be left is, you know, police dogs and, and flash grenades and et cetera. So that, that sort of brings us to the international part of this conversation, the, the role that inter-imperialist rivalry is playing. I wonder if, if the two of you could talk a little bit about the role of the China versus the United States conflict and why that's making this worse than it would otherwise be. I'm glad you mentioned that and that we're trying to bring that to the conversation. We're trying to bring geopolitics to the conversation that factor in or inter-imperialist rivalry because that doesn't seem like that's what's on a lot of average working people's minds. They're seeing it as just two sides of people arguing or two sides of different workers arguing and you must pick a side. But I think it's important for us to continue to put out there that as things intensify between these different bosses, whether it's U.S. imperialism or China or Russia-born imperialism, we have no stake in that fight. You know, we need to only be fighting for our class because they're not fighting for us. If anything, they're fighting for oil. You know, that's what's not being said. I think that the fact that, you know, you brought up oil is really important. And I think it's important for people to recognize how crucial Israel is uh, as a U.S. ally in that region. It is really the only loyal and reliable ally that the U.S. has. Now, the U.S. has sent a lot of money to Saudi Arabia and Egypt in that region. Of course, the U.S. occupied Iraq, but none of those places are as reliable an ally as, as Israel is for, for a number of reasons. In the case of Saudi Arabia and Egypt, there is the issue of, of U.S. political support for, for those places. Part of it might be based on anti-Arab racism present in the United States, but part of it is, is also that you know, Saudi Arabia is run by a, a royal family who has 100% control. It's viewed uh, by U.S. workers as you know, this sort of theocratic dictatorship. And also the Saudi royal family is not as committed to the U.S. as Israel is, uh, which we can see because now that the potential of normalization of relationship between Israel and Saudi Arabia, that has been uh, destroyed. There was talk that Israel and Saudi Arabia were going to establish some kind of diplomatic relations. And... Since the attack by Hamas on October 7th, that has, that has ended. And instead, Saudi Arabia and Iran are working on normalizing relations. So Saudi Arabia is not loyal. Uh, Egypt is not particularly loyal. So Israel is really the only one that the U.S. can rely on. And that's critical because, of course, that region is full of oil. And I just want to say one thing for, for listeners who might be thinking that, well, we're in the age of renewables and solar and wind and oil is going to 
decrease as an important commodity in, in global capitalism. There isn't really any sign of that happening uh, anytime soon. And oil is still critical to global capitalist function. One is that global shipping relies on oil, which means the global economy relies on oil. All of those giant ships that carry products from China to here, from here to there, they run on oil and they haven't come up with a way to make those ships uh, solar or wind powered. The other big thing, of course, is that the militaries of every country on the planet relies on oil and will continue to rely on oil for a very long time. They're not reducing the spending on their militaries, you know, put some numbers on it. The U.S. is spending close to a trillion dollars a year on defense. I think the number is somewhere close to $800 billion. China is spending almost $300 billion a year on defense, and that number is growing. So the two largest militaries in the world are continuing to spend more and more money on on their ships and planes and guns and tanks and et cetera, and they all run on oil. So it is critical for the U.S. as an imperialist power to continue to control Middle Eastern oil, and therefore they absolutely need Israel as a reliable ally. Yeah, I was reading that the, and I think I mentioned this on the podcast before, that the United States was offering a security arrangement with Saudi Arabia so that the United States would be on the hook to go to war if Saudi Arabia ever ended up at war. And I think these kinds of deals are extremely dangerous. And it's a it's a sign that like the United States is desperate to maintain uh, this close relationship with Saudi Arabia. Saudi Arabia didn't used to have options. Now China is an option and they can play China and the United States off against each other to get a better deal for themselves. Um, and the implications of Saudi Arabia starting another war with Yemen, going to war with Iran, and then the United States is automatically involved in that war, is the, the implications of that are, are pretty horrifying. We talked a little bit about how Saudi Arabia and Israel normalizing relations is a really important counterweight to China and how there's this alternative deal that might develop between Iran and Saudi Arabia. What, what is the danger in that's U.S. imperialism? What is Iran's role in this? Well, I did see something in the editorial. Yeah, and I see uh, where we say the disrupted deal between Israel and Saudi bosses, Iran is widely speculated to have pushed Hamas to conduct uh, the October 7th attack. So definitely seeing that uh, because I've, I've seen that online and I was wondering while we were on the call how true that is, you know, if it's true that Hamas was trying to strike to ruin that deal. Yeah, I mean, the, there's a well-established relationship with Iran and Hamas and a lot of their uh, money and weapons comes from Iran. Ironically, it comes through the Israeli state. The Israeli state has been a big uh, go-between to make sure that Hamas is funded because it's good for the Israeli ruling class to have Hamas around to be the villain. So the timing is suspicious. I, I, you know, I don't know if there's a lot of evidence that's come out, but the timing is clearly suspicious. With this rising conflict, Saudi Arabia was one of the six countries invited to join BRICS. Uh, which is an acronym for Brazil, Russia, India, China, and South Africa. If Saudi Arabia bosses continue with the partnership, which is set to begin January 2024, it'll put the U.S. at a disadvantage. They're already at a disadvantage economically. 
uh, with China rising and, and possibly pushing for a de-dollarization. And as the comrade mentioned, also at a disadvantage or potentially going to be at a disadvantage militarily. And now without Saudi Arabia and maybe even potentially Iran, they will be more at risk. The U.S. will be more at risk at, as failing as a, a world superpower or, you know, bringing us closer to closer to fascism. Because when the U.S. is under attack, it's not guaranteed that they're going to fall completely. But as we're seeing uh, with this situation, as a comrade mentioned earlier, we definitely will be under greater attack and surveillance as they try to, as the U.S. tries to gather their bearings. I think the relationship between Iran and China can probably be summed up as they're both on the, the opposite pole of U.S. imperialism. There is cooperation between them. I, I was just looking at a Reuters article that says that, so, so the United States has had sanctions on Iranian oil for many years now. However, China doesn't abide by those sanctions. And according to news outlet Reuters, they have saved over $10 billion by importing oil from Iran. I don't know the extent to which they have diplomatic ties, uh, but, but they certainly both are in the camp of being against the designs of U.S. imperialism. And so as, as conditions sharpen, you know, one of the things I think we're seeing is that countries are sort of choosing sides, right? That the U.S. and China clearly represent the, the two major powers as they get closer and closer to conflict, open conflict, all of the sort of satellite minor capitalist countries are going to have to pick a side. I think what we're seeing in terms of what's happening in Israel and Gaza is this Saudi Arabia, will they, will they side with the U.S. or will they side with China and Iran? And we can see this sort of playing out in a number of different places around the globe. We're seeing this situation where there's a lot of volatility and countries are, are sort of choosing sides. It looks like China and Iran and Russia sort of represent one side of this developing split between world imperialist powers. Yeah, two of those countries mentioned uh, are Turkey and Colombia that were formerly staunch U.S. allies. Uh, they pulled their ambassadors from Israel. When the United States was the only superpower, you know, they could force China to do things. They could force Iran to do things. Now that China has the power to stand on its own, it becomes much harder for the United States to exert their will in places like Iran, because Iran has other options. So I wanted to ask, like, uh, you know, there's class conscious workers out there who are, for very good reason, um, have nothing but just hatred for the U.S. empire and what it's done. And they may be tempted to feel like bricks, like you were talking about, it, this emergence of a, another pole might be a good thing. You know, it'll weaken the United, United States stranglehold in the world. Um, the Chinese insist that they're not interested in global domination, that they only want parity and they want you know, to develop the uh, global south and stuff. Why should we be skeptical of this, even though it weakens U.S. imperialism? We will never get a kinder capitalism. You know, I've heard this from some comrades and their mass orgs um, or mass organizations that they're a part of that some people see China as sort of being a, a, a hero for the working class. And not only, you know, do I think that's a mistake to believe that there could be a kinder version of capitalism, 
one because capitalism is is predicated upon us being exploited on black workers, Latin workers, Arab Muslim workers, uh, women, people of different genders being super exploited, marginalized in society. So why would we want an adaptation of that? Two, it's a mistake as we see with the liberals, with Democrats, with any electoral boss for us to put our faith in somebody else leading us, you know? So that's why I think it's important for us to get out and talk about communism as a third option. One, because we're pushing for a moneyless society, egalitarian society without exploitation, but also where we're trying to empower people to believe that workers can be in charge, to believe that we can lead our workplaces, our schools, where we live, our neighborhoods and things like that. So I'm not interested in what China or Russia is shelling out. And even still, we see that it's a bloody war like we're seeing in Ukraine, like we're seeing on the Gaza Strip that doesn't benefit us to get to where they're trying to go. More of us will be killed. I'm just follow that up. I think that those are excellent points, comrade. And I would just ask people to sort of think about the state of the working class in these BRICS countries. Uh, Brazil, Russia, India, China, and South Africa. Are, are workers in those places thriving? Are they egalitarian societies? Are they societies without racism and sexism? Of course they're not, right? South Africa is, if not the most, one of the most unequal uh, countries in the world. India is being run by Hindu fascists who are oppressing and murdering Muslim uh, workers in India. And so, you know, if those countries, if that's the situation for workers in those countries, what would make us think that those countries on an imperial stage, on the world stage, would care about workers elsewhere? Um, what makes us think that they wouldn't have the same drive for profit, the same need to exploit, the same need to use racism to generate super profit? I understand workers having hatred for U.S. imperialism. Like we understand that. We can see the, you know, the last 70 years is around the world we see death and destruction at the hands of, of U.S. imperialism. But to counteract that with another imperialist power, that's not a solution for the working class. As, as the comrade said, we need to take power away from any capitalist, no matter what they look like or where they're from or what language they speak. Uh, the working class is it's one international working class we are the ones that need power, not another imperialist. Yeah, well said. Capitalism has to continue to grow or it, it collapses. And that same capitalism is is what's at work in China. So regardless of what they say, or even what they may believe, uh, whatever promises they make is a fantasy because every year they're going to have to exploit more people. They're going to have to take more stuff. And that means invasions. It means robbing natural resources. And it has to be more every year and every year and every year until the you know, the planet is destroyed or workers take power. There's no other option. There's no sort of find a way to balance capitalism. That's impossible. Um, I want to go back a little bit to the Hamas. You know, there's this allegation that Hamas has ulterior motives. And, you know, again, a lot of working class people are sympathetic to what they see as a, 
a fight against apartheid and freedom. Um, and of course, we support an end to apartheid and we, we support freedom for Palestinians, but we don't see Hamas as having that interest as a core of their motivations. Um, you want to respond to people who are curious about that? Why not? Why not Hamas? Well, I'll say for me, it's even though I, I don't fully agree or I learn lessons from where the Panthers, the Black Panther Party uh, fell short, I guess in the 60s, it is very odd as a Black woman worker to be at these different rallies and hear people comparing Hamas to the Black Panther Party, you know, feeling as though they are there to be victors of Palestinian workers. Uh, but I'm also hearing mixed messages that a lot of Palestinian workers don't totally see Hamas as as their victors. But for those that do, I also empathize, similar to the comrade said, that they could be coming from a place of desperation. It's on us as the Progressive Labor Party, as communists, to make ourselves more known as a viable option. Because when we're not there, these are the gangsters, as we say, that take people's attention and they're just as bad as the liberals. You know, they're just as much of misleaders as other nationalists or um, liberal liberal reformist groups, you know. So definitely don't think that Hamas is a victor for people in Palestine or anybody in the working class. And the only reason why people might see it as such is because mass internationalist communist party you know we're small at the moment but we have to make ourselves more known and out there at this at this time yeah i i agree i think i think a lot of a lot of workers might be holding up hamas because of a lack of an alternative and that's what you know that's what we're trying to build is a as a worldwide international alternative a communist alternative hamas is an explicitly anti-communist, uh, sexist, ultra-religious organization. They they don't have the needs of Palestinian workers in their charter. You know the the original Hamas charter, uh, and even the one that they so the original charter was written in the eighties, and they updated it uh, in the two thousands, and they took out a lot of the original anti-Semitism that was present in the original charter. And they replaced it with sort of anti-Zionism, and they sort of they softened their their anti-Semitism somewhat. But what they didn't do is take out the sexism, uh, take out the anti-communism, take out the 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 basic anti-worker character of the document. You know, we argue that nationalism of all kinds is is deadly for workers, and what Hamas represents is a is a sort of specific type of nationalism specific to you know to that region and to this time but it ultimately aims to enrich itself the the leadership of Hamas aims to enrich itself off the backs of Palestinian workers there is some analysis that Hamas's attack was sort of to think of so that they could maintain their position as as the ruling party the ruling class of Gaza in order to get that money from, like you said, the money that was funneled through Israel to Hamas, it wasn't being distributed equally in Gaza. It was being hoarded by the, the, the leaders of Hamas. And so I think generally 
we have to see that nationalism, whether it's Israeli Zionist fascist nationalism, or whether it's Hamas's religious, political, anti-communist nationalism, and even the nationalism of the Palestinian Authority, they're all a poison for workers. And comrade, you're right. There was an article recently that showed that the majority of Palestinian workers in Gaza have no confidence in Hamas as, as leaders. And the majority of Palestinians in the West Bank have no confidence in the Palestinian Authority. So they see them very clearly as, as a ruling class that is willing to exploit and oppress Palestinian workers. A, a common uh, saying in Gaza is that they live under two occupations. And, you know, when we saw, say, why isn't there another alternative? People are turning to Hamas as no other, no other alternative. Well, Hamas waged a war with the Fatah kicked them out of the Gaza Strip, and they ruthlessly suppress any other political group from emerging. They want to continue ruling the Gaza Strip. They they see it as extremely profitable for them, and they they have no tolerance for any other ideas. And you know the the world that they would like to create is not one that's good for workers. What can win? What can actually win is multiracial unity. Is is the development of wor working class consciousness in Israel and in Palestine that recognizes that capitalism is the common enemy. And a movement like that can actually seize power and win. Uh, but as long as the Israeli ruling class and the uh, Hamas can make it about Jews versus Palestinians, the only winners will be capitalists. The working class will continue to die. One last question. Um, the op-ed claims that communist ideas are the most powerful weapon in the world, and that they can beat all of this, all of these tanks and all of these plants uh, can you talk a little bit about how workers should understand that? Well, even though it seems like when I talk to friends, it seems like uh, things are just getting worse. There's no end in sight. And for some of us that might be more politically in tune or leftist, we, it might seem like the U.S. could fall. Uh, but it's important for us to know that our conditions will not change on their own. We can look to the winds of the Soviet Union to see that a communist revolution where the working class goes toe-to-toe -to -toe with the ruling class and the closest that we have is seeing the, the gains and some losses from 2020, that's going to be the only thing that shifts the world in our favor. But again, seeing the losses or you know some of the concessions that came out after uh, the protests surrounding George Floyd's murder, Breonna Taylor's murder in 2020, we can't stop at just going toe-to-toe -to -toe with the ruling class or running some of these bosses out. Uh, we can't stop at revolution. We also must push for a collective, worker-led, moneyless, exploitation, racist, sexist-free world after. And that's why our communist ideas are important. One, like we're saying about workers that might be on the Gaza Strip getting bullied by Hamas or everywhere we're getting bullied by these liberals or they're trying to bully us in, in the states to around the world, we have to show workers how to fight back against them, but also, like you're saying, which ideas can win and be long lasting for us in the future. So when I hear that question, that's that's what I think about. I think communist ideas are the most powerful weapon in the world because it's only communist ideas that can get workers to shed the 
labels that capitalists try to put on us, whether it's gender or race or nationality or ethnicity or language, they, they try to divide us. And it's only communist ideas that can allow us to drop all of those and recognize that there is only one label that matters, and that's worker, and that workers all over the world are united in, in that, in our class position and our need to destroy this system and replace it with one where we have power, where we control society, where we make the rules. Yeah, I think it's important we, in, in dark times like this, I think it's important we end on a hopeful note, which, which is, yes, the working class, the working class made up of soldiers, students, and youth uh, who reject nationalist ideas and are led by communist ideas can beat any other fighting force. Um, and our job is to continue agitating um, and building that movement so it gets to the point where it can win. And we definitely can win. I want to thank you both for coming on the podcast. Uh, any, any last words? Power to the working class. No doubt. Thank you, comrades, for having us be on today. Thank you. Reach out.